I'd like to ask you to turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. First Corinthians 11, and this morning I'll be reading verses 17 through 34. This is God's word. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because you, when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. There's been a lot of discussion in our culture about the effect that technology has had in the last couple of generations on how we relate to one another, our social relationships. One part of life that has changed dramatically, I think, in the last generation or two is how we deal with family meals. And it's interesting how this whole discussion about how technology has changed the way we relate to one another has actually had an impact on how we relate to one another at meals. We've already dealt with the fact that long work days and long commutes and too many after-school practices and programs have tended to squeeze out time in our family schedule to gather around the table, look each other in the eye, and actually relate to one another, have conversations with one another, build relationships with one another within the family. And it is really a tragic loss when the family meal is gone from the family schedule in a given week. Studies have shown, and it's not surprising, that children who are raised with regular family meals have healthier eating habits, better manners, closer relationships to their parents and their siblings, less stress, 
better grades, stronger resistance to peer pressure, and more resilience in the face of life difficulties. Those are all things that the studies have shown, that the lack of regular family meals, that that really militates again, damages the family relationships in that sense. But this message this morning is not about family fellowship. It's the last in our series of messages on the fellowship of the church. And as important as family meals are for healthy relationships in our individual families, that pales in comparison to the importance of the Lord's Supper and the Lord's table to the fellowship of the church. And that's where I'd like to focus this morning. For the past two months, we've been looking at the spirit-given fellowship of the church. What does the Bible teach us about this community that we form together as Christians? We've looked at the source of our fellowship, that we are one in Christ, and it's our relationship with him that binds us together. We've looked at the foundation of our fellowship, which is the word of God, which defines what our fellowship is and how it operates. We've looked at the characteristics of that fellowship and many different aspects of what real, biblical, healthy, spirit-given, supernatural fellowship looks like. And last week, we looked at how to protect our fellowship, not allowing the sins that we will commit against one another, the sins that we commit in general, how to not allow those sins to divide us, to fracture our relationships to break us apart, how to protect our fellowship through loving confrontation. Well, in this last message, I'd like to focus on how we can strengthen this fellowship, an important means, a means of grace, that Christ has given to his church to help strengthen our fellowship. And if we neglect it, if we force it out, if we minimize it, if we water it down, then we will damage the relationships that we have in the church, just like the loss of the family meal damages the fellowship of the family. The Lord's Supper is our spiritual family meal. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And there is no higher form of fellowship that we share this side of eternity than when we gather around the Lord's table to commune together. And as we come together at our Lord's invitation... We experience the presence of Christ. And we experience him feeding us by his grace. And it's always experiences that bind a family together. Intense experiences, whether they're intense good experiences or intense bad experiences, it tends to bond a family. And there is no better, higher, intense experience of the Spirit of God, of the Spirit of Christ, than to gather around the table and to fellowship and partaking of the Lord's Supper. How does the Lord's Supper strengthen our fellowship? And that's what I'd like to focus on this morning. Everything I say is going to assume two things. First of all, it's going to assume that the Lord's Supper is being presented biblically by the leadership of the church. There are wrong ways to present the Lord's Supper. But I'm assuming that the the leadership of your church is administering or presenting to you the Lord's table and giving you the invitation to the table appropriately to Scripture. I'm also assuming that those who come are coming in faith, that they really have trusted in Christ, that they are born again by the Spirit, that their sins are forgiven at the cross, 
And they're walking with Christ by faith. I'm assuming that. And that as you come to the table, you're coming in faith and you're also coming in an attitude of repentance, confessing your sins. I'm assuming those things. If we come to the Lord's invitation to the table and respond to the invitation to the Lord's table in faith and repentance and come with anticipation, here's what the Lord promises. First of all, the Lord's Supper will strengthen our relationships with each other. The Lord's Supper will strengthen our relationships with each other. It's interesting, this passage that I read, I usually, you've heard it many times if you've been at Oakwood very long, because I usually introduce our observance of the Lord's Supper with verses 23 through 29. I read that almost every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Most churches do. It's where Paul gives us what the Lord's Supper kind of looks like, what the liturgy, so to speak, of the Lord's Supper looks like. But you'll notice I read it in context. I started back in verse 17 because I wanted you to see that Paul didn't set out to write just a liturgy here. What he was doing is actually rebuking a church, very sternly rebuking a very troubled church for the ways in which they were abusing the Lord's Supper, the ways in which it was actually harming their fellowship. And I think it's very important to see that in the context here in chapter 11. Paul is chastising the Corinthians because their observance, their worship, and particularly their observance of the Lord's Supper was actually becoming a mockery of what the Lord's Supper really was. In verse 17, he says, their coming together was not for the better, but for the worse. How'd you like to have the Lord say that about your worship service in your church? Your coming together is not for, your, for the better, but it's for the worse. You're actually, you're not benefiting from coming into the Lord's presence, you're actually being harmed by the way that you're approaching the Lord's table. And then in verse 20, he goes on to say, when you come together, it's not the Lord's supper that you eat. Wow. What they're doing is not even the Lord's supper. Doesn't even fit the definition. They had turned this sacred meal, this sacred time of communing with the Lord into a worthless ritual that actually angered God and harmed their fellowship. Well, how? Why? What was going on? What were they doing? It was so bad. Well, interestingly, if you read closely, it says that they were, their, their observance of the Lord's Supper was actually reflecting the divisions among them, he says. And as you look at what he says here and compare it to what he says in the rest of the book, we know that the Corinthian church was a divided church. Back in the beginning, they were divided among their leaders. Some followed Apollo, some followed Paul, some said they followed only Jesus. You know, they were all divided about leadership. There were sin issues among them. They were not dealing with sin. There's all kinds of problems the Corinthian church had. But here, Paul zeroes in on one that was directly affecting how they observed the Lord's Supper. It appears that there was a division between the wealthy, prosperous Christians in that fellowship and the poor Christians. A division between the haves and the have-nots. Let me take you back to verse 21 again. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Now, I'm sure some of you are sitting there thinking, when we get communion, all we get is a tiny little cup of wine and a little tiny crumb of bread. How could you overindulge in the bread and get drunk on the wine? Who who could possibly react that strongly to what you're served in the Lord's Supper? Well, obviously, they serve the Lord's Supper differently than we do. And what's interesting is you look back at the early church, 
you get the idea that what they did is they, they clearly saw the connection between the Old Testament Passover and the New Testament, New Covenant, observation of the Lord's Supper. They saw the Lord's Supper as fulfilling Passover. And you remember when Jesus celebrated the first Lord's Supper, the night before he went to the cross with his disciples, it was part of the Passover meal. And actually the bread would have been distributed to his disciples early in the meal, and the cup would have actually been offered to his disciples near the end of the meal. And so they would have actually partaken of the bread and partaken of the cup with a meal in between, a full Passover meal. And you get the idea as you look at early church history, what they did is they carried a lot of that over. The meal wasn't essential to the Lord's Supper. Jesus said the bread and the cup. That's what's essential to the Lord's Supper. But it seems like the early church retained something of a meal to go with the bread and the cup. And so they had what they called, and in one place in the New Testament calls it a love feast, an agape feast, an expression of Christian love. That's a, it's a feasting around the meal, which is not wrong, but not necessary to the meal. And so what happened was they actually had a full feast of a meal along with. We don't know if they actually had the cup and the bread together after the meal or they did it like the Passover meal, one at the beginning, one at the end. It doesn't really matter. But there was a full meal involved. And what was happening at that meal is that the wealthy people were feasting, literally feasting, like they were used to feasting in their own homes and their own parties, while the poor people were coming away hungry, starving at the end. And I'm not sure the logistics of that. I like the suggestion of somebody from the early service. They said, well, it sounds like they, instead of like a potluck dinner like we do, where everybody comes and throws everything on the table, everybody eats from it together. If that's what happened, then everybody was kind of scrambling and the rich people were getting there first. I'm not sure that's what was happening. I like the idea of somebody in the early service who said, I think what they did is they brought their own meal. Because actually, Paul actually makes a reference there to their own, they eat their own food and so the wealthy, it sounds like maybe, I like, like this idea, maybe the wealthy were bringing a, a very uh, sumptuous dinner for themselves where the poor brought what they had, which wasn't much. And that in the meal, it was actually reflecting this division, this, this division, this pride in the fellowship that was destroying the fellowship. Gluttony was not the sin that Paul's addressing. Yes, the rich appear to have been overindulging. They're even overindulging in in the wine to the point of getting drunk. But that wasn't the main sin. The sin that Paul's dealing with here is the sin of pride, the sin of worldliness. The pride that led the wealthy to say, I deserve a better meal than the poor do. They get what they deserve. The real sin at the root of the division that Paul was so incensed by was the the fact that it was a denial of the gospel. When you allow worldly divisions like that, what you're saying is the gospel isn't true. The gospel says we are all sinners. We are all lost. We have no hope until Christ came and died on the cross for our sins. And at the foot of the cross, we are all equally lost equally under the condemnation of God, and we come into the kingdom of God, we are forgiven for our sins by grace alone, and we are equal as sinners, and we're also equally saved by grace alone. And so when you allow divisions to come into the fellowship of the church, you're denying the gospel. When you say that the hardworking or the wealthy or the prosperous, they deserve something more than the poor, then you're denying the gospel. And that's why this made made Paul so angry. Matter of fact, that's why back in chapter 10, 
Paul uses the imagery of the bread that we eat in communion and says we all, we're all from the same loaf in the sense that we are one in Christ. How could you deny the very meaning of the Lord's Supper by saying there's divisions among us? This is in chapter 10, beginning in verse 16. The cup of blessing we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. The Lord's Supper is meant to be a meal where there is absolute, unconditional love and acceptance. Where there is no Jew or Greek, as we saw in the in Galatians chapter 3 a couple weeks ago. There is no male or female. There is no slave or free. There is no rich or poor. We are all sinners saved by grace. The Lord's table is prepared at the cross. And the Lord's table is to be a reflection of the message of the cross. It's a place Whereas James says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. It's a place where what Jesus said is true, where the last is the first and the first is the last. Where the world's concept of who's important and who's successful and who's, who's to be admired is turned upside down. Now, What's interesting is I thought about applying this text to the church today because of the fact that we don't have this sumptuous meal before or in the midst of the Lord's Supper. We're not prone or tempted to commit this same sin, which I'm sure we would if we had the temptation. But it does cause us to think, how do we observe the Lord's Supper in such a way that it actually strengthens our fellowship with one another instead of harming it? And there's many ways. I'll just just mention one as a possibility. And I think about this many times I don't know how to fix this. But this is due to the fact that in the early church, mostly they were house churches. And when they gathered to celebrate the Lord's Supper, they gathered around a literal table. And so as you pass the bread and the cup, you're actually looking each other in the eye and you're you're aware that that Jesus Christ is spiritually present there as the host of the meal and you're really communing together. But because our churches are bigger and we're in settings like this and we're all in pews facing forward, we don't gather around the table. The Lord's table is metaphorical, not literal in our setting. And what we end up doing is serving you and we pass the plate and there is a little bit of a communal element to it, but it's not the same as table communion. It's not the same as gathering around the Lord's table. And I, I miss the fact, and I've served churches that were smaller where we actually were able to pull off real table communion. And there's an imagery there that I think the meal is supposed to have that we lose And I think it's one of the many reasons why the modern church really struggles with individualism. Because communion, when you're facing the front and it's being served to you as an individual, it's very easy to see this as something just between you and the Lord. It certainly is between you and the Lord, as we'll talk about in a minute, but it's really intended by the Lord. You can see the way Paul addresses it here. It's intended to be something that strengthens the relationships among us. The Lord's Supper is a time where we celebrate, rejoice, and dig deep into what it means to be one in Christ. The second, and of course related, is that if we are one, in, one with each other, then our oneness is in Christ. So what this supper does, according to what Paul presents here, is it strengthens our relationship with Christ. 
It strengthens our relationship with each other because it strengthens our relationship with Christ. After the giving of both the bread and the cup, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Paul emphasizes that. Do this in remembrance of me. That because, Paul emphasizes that, I think, because that's exactly what was missing in the Corinthian church. The Lord's Supper wasn't primarily about Jesus Christ. It wasn't in remembrance of him. The meal is about Christ. It's about who he is, what he has done, and what he is doing for us, and ultimately what he will do for us, not about what we were doing for him. We are to come to the Lord's table focused as completely as possible upon our guilt and the immensity of his sacrifice on our behalf. And as we focus upon the cross, we are humbled and we're filled with gratitude and we're drawn closer to him. All that is to be going on within us. And as we draw closer to Christ, it has to happen that we will draw closer to each other. Think of it like the hub of a wheel. We are the spokes. As the spokes get closer to the hub, the spokes get closer to each other. The closer we draw to Christ, the closer we get to one another. And the Lord's Supper is a primary means that Christ has given to his church to draw us to himself and therefore to each other. In John chapter 6, after Jesus had fed the 5,000 with the literal bread and the fish, it says the people chased him around the Sea of Galilee in order to get more bread, more literal bread made with wheat. Jesus said to them, Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. And they said, Oh, Jesus, we like that idea. That's why we want you to be the king. You can give us bread every day. We won't ever have to worry about putting bread on the table. And so they said, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You see, drawing close to Jesus is what fills us, what satisfies us, what meets our needs. We feed upon him. And the table, the Lord's table, is one of the primary places by which he intends to feed us. That's where he gives himself to us. Is at his table. When he took the unleavened bread during the Passover meal and he broke it into pieces and gave it to his disciples, he said, this is my body which is for you. I'm giving myself to you. Then at the end of the Passover meal, he presented the third or the fourth cups of the meal and and he said to them, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Now I know historically that some churches have said that something magical happens and the actual bread, the literal bread and cup turn into the literal body and blood of Christ. That's not what he's talking about. Other churches have said, no, no, no. It's just a reminder. The bread and the cup are just kind of a reminder to us. And so we're just to kind of celebrate kind of like a birthday dinner or anniversary dinner, what Christ did at the cross. It's just a reminder. But what the scriptures actually say as you put the whole picture together is that it's really much more than both of those. That we are really being fed when we come by faith, when we come to the table. That there is a spiritual nourishing that happens when we come by faith that Christ has promised that he'll give himself to you, that you'll grow in him as you partake of the Lord's Supper by faith in a spirit of repentance. It's a means of grace. 
It actually, as we take it rightly, it conveys grace from the Lord to us so that we are spiritually nourished and strengthened. These are signs. That's why the Bible calls them signs. They, in and of themselves, are worthless. But if they point to something powerful and spiritual and real, then they're not only significant, they're necessary to our lives. In verse 26, it says, In the meal we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What the Lord's Supper is, in a very real way, is a dramatization of the gospel. It's really the Lord's intended dramatization of the gospel. That's one reason in our churches you'll notice that we tend to to not go the route of putting up big visuals and doing drum, you know, dr- little dramas up on stage and doing YouTube clips. And, you know, we don't use a lot of visuals in the service, partly because we're boring Presbyterians, but also because it suits our personalities. But, <laughs> but it's honestly also by conviction that those things to the flesh are much more exciting, much more thrilling than the visuals that Christ intended for the gospel, which is the Lord's Supper. And if we get too caught up in multimedia presentations and worship, we tend to de-emphasize the really the only visualization, the only dramatization of the gospel that Christ intended to go with the preaching of his word. Signs are worthless by themselves, but if they point to something real, they're powerful. If you're driving down the interstate and you see a sign on the side of the road that says rest stop two miles. If you drive two miles and there's nothing but a barren field there, or in Pennsylvania sometimes an empty, broken-down old rest stop that hasn't been open for 10 years, then that sign is not only worthless, it's actually damaging because you had planned your whole trip based on the fact that that would be there, that that rest would be there. But if it's a real rest stop, then the sign is very, very helpful. Or a better example... You're driving down the highway, and you start to have a heart attack. And you see a sign alongside the road that's a big blue sign with a white H on it, and it points to the next exit. And you're able, as you're having your heart attack, to pull off on the next exit and drive into the hospital, and the doctor's able to get you on the table, and he's able to resuscitate you and save your life. You might, in recounting the whole story, say, wow, that sign, I'm really glad I saw that sign, because that sign saved my life. Well, no, the sign didn't do anything. The sign can't help you at all unless it points to someone real that can do amazing things. And that's what the Lord's Supper is. It's not only a sign that points to Christ, but in some mysterious way actually conveys us into the very presence of Christ as he is the spiritual host of this meal. And as we partake, we actually are fed spiritually. And we desperately need to be fed spiritually when we come to the Lord's house together. We are fed by the reality of the presence of Christ and the reality of the gospel. This meal points to the past, to Christ hanging on the cross, bearing the wrath of God that your sins deserved for all eternity, bearing them for you, being punished for you on the cross. It points to the cross in the past, but it points to the very presence of Christ in our midst now. He is here, and he's nowhere more powerfully present than when he's the host of the Lord's Supper. As his gospel message is played out before us and as we feed upon him but the final point is that the lord's supper points to the future our shared future that's why it bonds us so much it's because it points to our common destiny 
The Lord's Supper strengthens our common hope. Verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's a past emphasis to the meal, there's a present emphasis to the meal, and there's a future emphasis to the meal. We are looking forward to the marriage feast of the Lamb every time we come to the Lord's table. It's not a feast yet. We're not intentionally trying to make you thirsty or hungry by only giving you a tiny little cup and a tiny little crumb of bread, but there is a reminder in that, that the feast is not now. We're still the church in the wilderness. We're still walking by faith. It's by faith and not by sight, but one day it's going to be completely by sight, and man, what a feast it's going to be for all eternity. And this meal points us to that. Only then will we be fully satisfied, because only then will sin be put away once and for all, and we will be with Christ, we will be like Christ, and we'll be like that forever. According to Mark's gospel, Jesus said to his disciples when he met with them before he went to the cross, he said, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. I used to read that as a new Christian. I used to read that and I think, Jesus is lamenting there. Like, oh man, I don't get to drink wine for another who knows how many thousand years. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I can't wait until that day when I am going to drink and feast with you when all of this is all completed and I'm with you forever. He said it with great anticipation and joy. We've been reading and studying the book of Revelation in our Sunday school class. You remember these verses from this morning's lesson, chapter 22, verses 7 through 9. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. I've heard that in the early church, they concluded their communion service, their Lord's Supper observance. They concluded it by having everybody at the table pray together, Maranatha, which is the word that appears at the end of Revelation 22, which means, come, O Lord. Come. Come, Lord Jesus. Having a common destiny and a common destination for our lives, for our existence, is a powerful uniting force. That's true in just basic human psychology, but especially in spiritual terms. We are eternally bounded and bonded together because of our common history at the foot of the cross and our common future in the new heavens and the new earth. Reminds me of that old hymn. I first heard it in relation to slaves singing about being released from slavery in the United States, but it has much more deeper spiritual and eternal significance when you think of it in terms of the Lord's Supper. It says, I am bound for the promised land. I am bound for the promised land. Oh, who will come and go with me? I am bound for the promised land. It's a great hymn to sing with the Lord's Supper. Now you're probably sitting there thinking as you're realizing that I'm giving you all the nonverbal signals that I'm wrapping up my message that boy, it'd be nice if we celebrated the Lord's Supper this morning. <laughs> didn't work out that way in my preaching schedule <laughs> and uh, didn't want to uh, make the adjustment that that would mean for my preaching schedule, but actually I thought, you know what? It's probably a good thing because you have a week to think about it. I'm sure you've all had that experience where you've walked into church and your mind's been on many other things and you sit down in the pew and you pick up the bulletin and you look and say, oh, it's communion Sunday. I haven't even thought about it. We've well, got a week to think about it. A week to reflect on 1 Corinthians 11 and what the Lord's Supper means for a relationship with each other and your relationship with Christ. 
It's an opportunity for you to examine yourself. That's what Paul talks about. That's why I included that portion of the passage from verses 27 through 32 where it says that we're to examine ourselves before we come to the Lord's table to make sure that we're discerning the body. And I actually wrestled with that phrase through my studies this week. I've wrestled with it before, and I tried to dig a little deeper this week to see if I could really come down and plant my feet strongly on an interpretation here because good, solid biblical commentators can't agree on this. When Paul says that we must discern the body as we gather at the table of the Lord, what's he, what's he mean? What's the body he's referring to? If you look at the immediate context, he's talking about the body of Christ broken for us. And that's usually how it's taken. But there's a very good case to be made for the idea that he's actually referring to the metaphorical body of Christ, which is the church. Because if you look at it in the context of chapter 10 and, and what's going on at the beginning of chapter 11 and what he says afterwards, he's actually concerned about the unity of the church in Christ and in the gospel. And so what that says to me, I, actually I came away saying, you know what, I think Paul's being intentionally vague there. I think he probably means both. That we are to be certainly discerning the body of Christ that's broken at the cross as we come to the Lord's table, but we're also to be thinking about the body of Christ, which is the church, and our relationship with the church. And that's why we're told before we come to the Lord's table, we need to examine ourselves to confess all the sins that the Lord might bring to our attention. We've got a week to do that now, to really think about sins that I need to confess and turn from so that I can really rejoice in the Lord's forgiveness when I come to the table. But also, I need to look at the relationships in my life. Are there broken relationships in my life? Are there people that I'm going to be communing with next Sunday, sitting around our metaphorical table, looking each other in the eye, who I've actually not been at peace with, who I've actually not done all I can do to go and be at peace with them, or they're offended by me, or I'm offended by them. It gives you some time to prepare. The first couple of churches I pastored, we didn't celebrate communion monthly. Right now, in PCA churches, typically you celebrate the Lord's Supper either monthly or weekly. But we used to celebrate it quarterly, and that actually is more reflective of the old Presbyterians going way back. Because what they did is they, and part of the reason they were being persecuted, that's one reason they didn't celebrate communion more often, but what they would do is they'd actually have preparatory services. And so, literally, you would have like a Thursday night service, Sometimes a Thursday night service, a Friday night service, a Saturday night service, a Sunday morning service, and then they gather around the table and celebrate communion on Sunday evening. And they called them preparatory services. What, it, was, it was like a, a Presbyterian revival. And of course, Presbyterian revivals don't look like other revivals. No, no dancing, no, skin, no singing, no, you know, no jumping up and down and all that. It's, it's very, you know, preparing for the Lord's Supper. It's confessing sin and, you know, but a very important role. We don't do that anymore. But the problem is, so many times we come to the Lord's table, we haven't done any of it. We haven't done any preparation. You've got a week. Pray. Search the scriptures. Search your heart. Dig deep into the gospel. And then come and celebrate your unity in Christ around the table. They said about Jesus, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Praise God that he does. And Jesus says to the church, as he did to his first disciples, I have earnestly desired to eat this meal with you. He can't wait to have you at his table that he might feed you with himself. Let's pray and prepare ourselves. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Lord's Supper. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that applies your grace to us when we come to your word and come to the supper and see Christ crucified and risen from the dead, our hope, our common hope that we share. Thank you, Lord. For the gospel. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.